Welcome. It is good to see everybody this morning, and uh, what a privilege to be here. Uh, this has been a challenging couple months for our family. We've had lots of things going on, but one of the things that's been just especially challenging is um, a couple weeks ago, our future son-in-law, Cannon, uh, we call him our son-in-law in escrow. Escrow, <laughs> escrow closes in the middle of November, so it's coming up really soon. And uh, we're very excited about that. But um, Cannon's brother, a couple weeks ago, um, uh, passed away. And uh, we yesterday went and celebrated his, his life and did a memorial. And it was just so uh, encouraging for me yesterday to see his family um, just struck with an amazing, unimaginable tragedy. And... To, to see um, them respond the way Job responded when he lost everything. And I, you think about Satan's timing and Satan's ability to just bring destruction and that Satan timed things perfectly so that as Job was standing there, he heard bad news perfectly at the same time and basically the loss of everything, including his kids. And just him falling on his face and saying, you know, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And to be able to see, you know, so often families are torn apart and destroyed by this kind of tragedy. And to see them just loving and honoring God in the, mix, in the midst of their pain and their sorrow. And uh, seeing the way that they encouraged each other was just really encouraging. And his dad said something to me yesterday. Um, he just said, you know, I've been for the for this however long he's been a believer, which has been over 30 years. He said, I've been serving and functioning and giving to the church. And he just said, today the church gave to me. And he just talked about how um, uh, their, their pastor, Gunnar Gunderson, came alongside and just said, we're doing everything. We're taking care of everything. And just looking at the service yesterday, and he just he was just talking about what an amazing blessing it was to have the body of Christ in this time of, of trial and difficulty and tragedy just come alongside and say, we're going to take care of everything. It was just awesome. And I, and I loved uh, seeing my future son-in-law face this personal tragedy and seeing the place that God has in his life. And actually for us, there's a lot of things we like about Canon, but that is actually the reason we're excited to have him as our future son-in-law, is that God is the center of his life. And uh, so that's something I'm thankful for. You guys could be praying for us, praying for their family. Uh, this picture was actually um, a picture that Colt, uh, that Colt drew. And one of the things that Cannon shared was that on one page, he had made all these stick figures. And it showed everybody talking and doing all these things, and they were all together. And then there was another page just all by itself. And uh, Cannon just shared how his brother was really struggling with feeling alone. And yet the truth was many people loved him and were involved in his life, and he was never alone. And I think about Hebrews 13, um, where uh, Jesus says, be content, or the, the writer of Hebrews says, be content with what s such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And that Jesus never leaves us, he is always with us. And uh, one of the gentlemen yesterday also just shared, he said, um, he said that perception sometimes is reality. 
and your perception can be your reality. And that's one of the things in the body of Christ is we realize that uh, perception may feel like reality, but perception is not always reality. And that's where as the body of Christ and as people who love each other, we come alongside, we encourage, we help. And it just was a reminder. It's a reminder to me of how important it is for us in the body of Christ to express love to each other, to care for each other. We can let the most silly things cause us to have tension and difficulty and conflict. And when you think about what is at stake in life and how important it is that we love other people and how important it is when we're struggling that we put that struggle out for everybody to see and that we invite people into our lives to love us and to care about us. And uh, that's really, as we think about where we're headed this morning, um, these are the things that, that God cares about. That's what the body of Christ is for. That is, that is what Jesus came to do, was to, dis- was to repair what Satan has destroyed. And we know uh, John 10, 10, right? John 10, 10 says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And there are so many things in life that we see, that's Satan. But Jesus says, I came that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly. And, um, and that's the thing Satan does. It's what we've been looking at. And, and this morning, we're actually going to kind of finish up uh, a discussion on church leadership. And, and specifically, what we're talking about in church leadership is why in this church have we had a history of men preaching on Sunday morning and men as elders. And there, there are a lot of churches that do that. Um, there are churches that don't do that. So the question is why? And so we've looked at uh, some things in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. And basically the things that we've looked at, we looked at creation. The fact that God made everything and that God made Adam and Eve, that he made them in his image, both men and women, in his image. And he gave them the same purpose in life, the same commission. He didn't give Adam one commission and Eve a different commission. He gave them as men and as a man and a woman made in his image the same commission. And God intends them to fulfill that together. But one of the things that we see in Genesis chapter 2 and as we and in Genesis chapter 3 is that God didn't make Adam and Eve exactly the same. God made Adam and Eve to complement one another. And so they have the same purpose, the same mission, but he made them complementary. And so then the question is, how should that work its way out in life? And so there's things that we can look at and we can get some clues, but one of the things we need to do when we want to figure out, well, okay, if men and women are to complement each other, how does that work specifically? Well, we need to read the Bible to figure out what that is. And so we see some things in the opening chapters of Genesis, even in the fall, we see that, that God, when Adam and Eve sinned, we see that God went to Adam and said, Adam, why are you hiding? He addressed Adam. That's an expression of, of leadership, of responsibility. And then what did Adam do? He blamed Eve. He said, God, it's you because you gave me Eve, and she's, she's a bad person. <laughs> Look what she did. She, she gave me the fruit, and I ate. And then Eve blames the snake. Hey, it's not my fault. The snake tricked me. And one of the things that I find interesting there 
is that God actually holds everybody responsible to honor him and to obey him. He didn't say, Eve, you know, what you did didn't count because Adam's the leader. No, that is not what happened. And God didn't say to Eve, well, you're the one, you and Adam are the ones I gave instructions to, so what the snake did, it doesn't matter. And we realize that in the Garden of Eden, that, that Satan indwelled and was behind what the snake did, and God cursed the snake, but that was Satan in the Garden of Eden tempting Adam and Eve, saying, God's not good. God is holding out on you. God is trying to keep you from having something wonderful and satisfying. He attacked God's goodness. And then God looks at Eve and he says, he curses the snake. And in his curse of the snake, he promises a redeemer and he blesses and elevates and exalts Eve in his curse of the snake. And he says that he is going to send a Messiah to repair this problem that has taken place and that it is going to be the seed of the woman. And so Eve, this helper that God gave Adam, is going to be the the ancestor of the Messiah. Not Adam, by the way. He is not the ancestor of the Messiah. Um, Eve is the ancestor of the Messiah. And then God speaks to Eve. He doesn't say, Eve, you're off the hook. (laughs) Your husband's the leader. Adam is the leader and the representative of mankind, so you're off the hook. That is not what happens. Uh, God speaks and addresses Eve because she sinned, and he holds her responsible for what she's done. Every single one of us is accountable and responsible before God. And then he looks at Adam, and he curses Adam, and he addresses Adam. And Adam, we find out in Romans and throughout Scripture, Adam is the reason that the human race fell. Um, the, 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 never is Eve attributed with the consequences of the fall of the human race. Adam is. And Jesus is the second Adam. So those are some things that when you just look at creation and you look at what God did and how that worked its way out, there's a lot of lessons we can learn from that. And one of those is that all of the Bible writers speak and talk about Genesis 1 through 3 as though it's history, as though it really happened, as though these are real people. And so that's not a surprise to us. We would expect that. And so... um, But then when we want to think through, okay, well, how does this work its way out? What does God say about these things? We look into Scripture to find that out, and that's what we're going to do this morning. And so, um, you know, when when you talk about, I just want to make one point, too. When you talk about the complementary way that God has designed men and women, um, we have a culture, we have a society that rejects that says, no, men and women are not complimentary. I mean, it is insulting. It is derogatory to talk about the fact that men and women are different. Uh, for, for God to have different roles for men and women in the home or in the church, that is viewed as uh, an attack, as a, as a devaluing of a person's worth. And anytime we think about it, things in those terms, we need to recognize, no, those are all Satan's lies. God is good. God is gracious. Everything that God tells us is for our well-being, and everything God tells us is best. And so we see that. We know that. That is not how our culture uh, views those things. And so it's important for us to be able to think about these things and understand why we believe the things that we believe. Now, um, let's just talk about life just briefly, physically. 
are men and women the same physically or do we complement one another? Like, just think about that. That is not brain surgery. Um, you know, I, I remember there was a Time article some, some years ago where the, where the, 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 the uh, cover of the Time magazine said, men and women are different. <laughs> it's just like, okay, great. That's worthy of the front page of an article. That's this new wonderful discovery. Men and women are different physically, um, and men and women are different emotionally. Men and women are different mentally. Do you know that women score higher on IQ tests than men? You know that women do better in our educational system in the sense of the way the classroom is designed, that is designed and works better for women than men? Um, there's all kinds of things. You, know, you guys all know, right, women live longer than men. And, and uh, you know, my Italian father-in-law has shared his uh, theory for that, at least in the Italian. He's like, the, the women... Uh, the men, the, the women let all their stress out, and the men hear all the stress, and that's, that's why the men don't live as long. But statistically, we don't know why, but, specific, but statistically, women live longer. But what do we have in our culture and our society? We have men and women sports, right? Why? Because men and women are different. Not better, not worse, different. And we have a culture that is beginning to reject what God has designed with men and women. Where, um, in fact, uh, there's a, there was a school teacher that, that just went to this training. And uh, this is just, I heard about that just this week. And uh, the training was not to refer to anybody as a pregnant woman, but rather a pregnant person. Um, I just want to go out there and say, if you're pregnant... You're a woman. <laughs> and that is how that works. But we have a culture and a society that are rejecting those basic physical things. A culture that says, oh, we're scientific. We follow the science. And they reject things like that. And I just want you to know that it didn't start with our physical, the way God has made us physically unique. It started with less tangible things. But women, men and women are not, like, like what, what God has done with us physically, he has done with us in other ways. And um, embracing who God has made each of us to do is the best thing that we could possibly do. Now, Satan always tries to present two different options as though they're the only options. And so Satan's options for us are uh, be chauvinistic, um, uh, oppress women, uh, create differences between men and women that are not really differences between men and women. Take what God has designed about the differences of men and women and let's, let's use those to oppress and to cause conflict and difficulty. You know, just all the things, like let's just talk about all the evils that have happened where women are seen in some cultures as, you know, like uh, there's one religion in one country where it, where. Their religion is that if a woman burns the toast, you can beat her. That's like one of the reasons to physically abuse your wife if she doesn't cook well. So let's take all those things. That's one option Satan presents. And the other option is reject everything God says about what he designs for men and women. Those are not the only two options. The other option is to embrace what God says, to not add to it and to not take away from it. So let's jump in here, and, and our first point this morning 
is this, um, that men and women are equally necessary and complementary. And we see that in Genesis chapter 2, verse, uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. We've read this. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. That is a collective commission that God has given mankind. And we each play a, necess a necessary role. Um, here's another one, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. This comes as no surprise to us. It is an expression of what God said in Genesis chapter 1. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Equal value, equal dignity, equal standing before God, equal love. And uh, let's look at uh, 1 Peter 3, 7. It says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Does God care about women? Does God care about the abuses that happen in our culture and in our society and in other cultures and society? Absolutely. One of the things you see in here is that God says, I care so much about how you treat your spouse and whether you honor her and the way that you treat her is that if you don't treat your wife the way I call you to treat your wife, I won't even listen to you when you pray. But it talks about living with your wife in an understanding way as a weaker vessel. I mean, is this brain surgery? Like if, if we put all, you know, men can run the 100-yard dash and so can women, and they're both beautiful and amazing as they do that. But we don't put them on the same track because women are a weaker vessel in some ways. And so we need to look at Scripture and talk about, well, what does that mean and how does God intend for us to work that out? You know, when you think about um, just the value that God places on men, uh, on men and women throughout Scripture, it's everywhere. You think about the redemption of mankind in Genesis 3.16. The fact that murder, the penalty for murder is death for men or women, because both men and women are made in God's image. Um, when you look at the Ten Commandments, honor your father and your mother. Proverbs talks about kids. You need to honor and respect and learn from both your mother and your father. You look at Judges chapter 4, verse 4, and you see the prophetess Deborah. She's listed as a judge. And she goes to Barak, and she says to Barak, hey, God says you should go fight this battle. And Barak's like, well, I'm not going unless you come with me. And she's like, well, okay. So she goes with him. And she says that um, this, this, the credit for this is going to go to a woman because you wouldn't go when God told you to. God uses women greatly, Rahab, Ruth, Esther. I think one, of the, one of the stories that stands out to me is in 1 Samuel 25, and there's this lady named Abigail, and she's married to Nabal. And I don't know if you've ever read that story, but it is a great story. And just in case you didn't know this, the word Nabal is Hebrew for fool. And, and this guy's a fool. And I just think, like, how did he get the name fool? You know, what parent names are, you know, maybe his parents changed his name when he was a teenager. I don't know. But his name is fool. And basically, David is traveling with all his, his warriors and and he's protecting this man. He's protecting his sheep. He's not stealing anything, even though he has all kinds of power. 
And so then David comes and he says, hey, I'm coming and I want you to give me some food and I want you to, I want you to take care of us and, and we've kind of protected you, I haven't stolen anything from you. And this Nabal is such a fool. He just says, get out of here. You can't have anything. Who do you think you are? He just like speaks to him disrespectfully. So David uh, hears this and he's like, okay, let's go kill him and let's kill everybody in his family. And uh, his wife hears about this. And the Bible says that his wife Abigail is a wise person and that she's a very beautiful person. And so she goes and she talks to David and she just says, hey, my husband's a fool. Here's all the stuff that you asked for. Um, just don't, don't do this thing. And so she convinces David and David just says, Abigail, you just saved not only your husband's life, but everybody else's life. Um, there's, you know, one of the things as you look through scripture, you get no sense ever that God's intention is that women should just be quiet, stand in the back and get out of the way so that the men can get things done. Um, th there are times and places and cultures that have that perspective. You never get that perspective from reading scripture. As you consider the New Testament and you think about these things, Matthew chapter 1, you have the genealogy of Jesus contains women. The birth of Christ emphasizes Elizabeth, Mary, Anna. John chapter 4, you have Jesus disregarding these cultural, these inappropriate culture th cultural traditions where men aren't supposed to talk to women. And, and Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman. And, and she is then going and bringing other people to meet him. Jesus traveled and was financially supported specifically by women. Uh, Mary sat at Jesus' feet. And when Martha said, um, Mary, you belong in the kitchen with me, Jesus said, nope, she needs to be sitting at my feet hearing and learning from me. Um, after his resurrection, women were the first people that saw Jesus, and he's the one, they're the ones who went and told the disciples. You never get this perspective. The Apostle Paul, I mean, it is throughout the whole New Testament that God intends each of us to function fully, to use every gift that we have. Like I've heard people who hold to the complementarian views just say, yeah, as a woman, you may be really talented and gifted in a certain thing, but as a woman, you shouldn't use that gift. And I would just go out there and say, you should use every ability, every talent, every gift that you have fully to honor the Lord. So. I have like a, a long list of other examples, but we'll skip those. I just want you to know that was like a very small list of how God intends men and women to function equally in using their gifts to build up the body of Christ. So let's talk about the differences. What are the differences? And basically, um, we're going to look at two things. God calls men to lead in their homes. God has a purpose for that. And God calls, the third thing we'll look at is that God calls men to lead in the church. That is not in every area and it is not in every way, but there are things that God has, has reserved and just said, men, you need to do this. And so let's look at those passages. Let's start in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 33, or verse 15. Ephesians 5, verse 15. And I want to show you one of the... Um, one of the ways that people approach the Bible in a very negative, harmful way, there are many people who take a verse in the Bible that they like, and then they use it to cross out other verses. This happens 
um, all over. It happens about in all kinds of ways with all kinds of things. Um, when you look at even election and sovereignty and versus free will and man making choices, and the thing is, is that Bi the Bible teaches us both concepts. And instead of saying, okay, well, what does God say over here? I'm going to hold to that without changing it or modifying it. And what does God say over here? I'm going to hold to that without changing or modifying it. We have people who go, no, I like this, so I'm going to cross out all these verses. And you have other people who go, no, I like this. I'm going to cross out all these verses. Uh, one of the things that I've been doing over the last few weeks is I've been just reading, trying to find who's, who are some people who say that they believe in the Bible and they believe that it's inspired, and yet they have a different view than I have. Uh, they think that, no, uh, not only, only, only men do not necessarily need to be the leaders in their home. Men do not necessarily need to be the leaders in the church in these in specific ways. And I'm reading those. And you want to know the, one of the things that, that just occurs to me as we read through these passages is people take one verse and then they cross out another one. And I want to show you this passage is one of the places that that happens. Ephesians 5.18. It says, do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then they'll just say the very next verse. Maybe we should just start by reading that. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And <laughs> you want to know what they do with that? They cross that out. No, because verse 21 says submit to one another. So wives, submit to your husbands. Nope, that verse is not there. That verse does not mean that. Uh, you don't submit because we submit to each other. So yes, okay, I'm the wife. I need to submit to my husband. Well, verse 21, you need to submit to me. And so they cross that out. Well, what do we do with verses like that? How do we think about what those things mean? Because we don't take wives submit to your husbands and then cross out the verse that says submit to one another. We don't do that either. What is this talking about? And there's a few things here, um, but I think that in the following passages, as, as he continues on, Paul's not contradicting himself. He's not saying one thing and then unsaying the next thing that he says. Um, we understand, submit to one another by what Paul teaches next as he goes through. And it's interesting, there are three things that follow. Um, relationships in the home, relationships between parents and children in verse 6, uh, 1 through 4, and relationships with bond slaves and masters in verse 5 through 9 of chapter 6. So submit to one another. And then these are the channels in which you submit. Wives submit to their husbands, children submit to their parents, um, bond slaves submit to their masters. That's the submitting to one another. It follows right in that context. Um, is there another sense in which we can also submit? I find this interesting. In 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, um, there's like a mutual submission, a mutual ownership. Now look what it says here. Um, 1 Corinthians 7, 4 says, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And then there's a lot of people in cultures where that's where the verse stops. But read what it says next. Likewise, the husband 
does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. In marriage, you own each other. You're not your, you're not your own. And then he goes on and he says, don't deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a, little, for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come again together so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So what do we see here? It's like we own each other and we're to, we're to use the authority that God gives us for the blessing and benefit of each other. And um, he goes on and, and, and he describes that. Let's, let's look at verse 22. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. You know, there's this debate about what head means. Does head mean leader or does head mean source? And I think if you just read this, it says the, wife is the, uh, the husband is the head of the wife. And then it goes on to say the wife should submit to the husband. And so you have to rip this out of its context to try to get it to not say what it is saying. And then it goes on and it gives responsibility to husbands. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to the church himself in splendor, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without sprot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's a reference to Genesis chapter 2. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so we see within marriage that this is a picture of Christ and the church as well. And so this, you would expect the same leadership relationship in the family to be reflected in the church. Because a marriage reflects Christ and the church. But when we want to know, okay, well, what does that mean specifically? We shouldn't just make it up we should actually read what the Bible says about that. What are the specific instructions that God gives? And so before we move to that, I just want to ask you something. There's all kinds of abuses between men and women. There's all kinds of ways that men and women have conflict. And instead of complimenting one another, instead of building each other up, instead of encouraging each other, they tear each other down. And there's all kinds of abuse. And I just want to ask you something. When you read what God says to men, in this passage, is there any room for any kind of abuse? Is there any room for any kind of taking advantage of a person? When you look at what Jesus says about leadership, that leadership is servanthood. Um, when you read this passage, do you see a man walking in after work and sitting down and watching TV and saying, bring me something to eat and bring me something to drink because we just got home and there's a servant there? 
Like, do you see any, like, is there any room for that in anything that Jesus says? The answer to that is no. But see, that's what Satan does. Satan says, if you believe the Bible and if you trust the things that God says, well, that's going to result in abusiveness, and we got to get away from that because that's bad. No, it isn't bad. It is God's best. It's God's blessing for us, and we should embrace it fully, all of it. And uh, chauvinism is misrepresenting what God says about the value and the dignity of people. It is the reason people have trouble in marriage is because each person doesn't focus on what God has called them to do. Marriages have intent, God intends marriage to be the most strengthening, most blessed human relationship. And yet, uh, you guys have all heard about marriage, right? The, the rings of marriage, the engagement ring, the wedding ring, and then the suffering. <laughs> and uh, do we see that working its way out? Hey, we see that everywhere, don't we? Because Satan wants to destroy a place, the most significant place that God intends for the gospel to be proclaimed. It's in, it's in marriage. The place that evangelism should happen is in your home. You have a kid from the time they're born. You're teaching them to eat and drink, and, and you're taking care of every need that they have. You shape their thinking. And so God intends that we raise people, that they see an example of worship in the life of their mom and dad, that they're being taught as they live life how to think about what it means to worship God. There's people who think that their most important project is to make sure that their kids know how to tie their shoes and that they can do math and that they pass their classes at school. Or that they'll clean their room. Or some parents, they just want their kids to go watch TV in the back room. And they want them to go do that because they rather hang out with their other friends. Uh, there's people who have completely misunderstood the purpose of a home, which is to raise up and to train kids to love and honor and worship God. You start teaching kids what that means, what it means to share, what it means to honor other people made in God's image. Like three-year-olds, when they go to the nursery and they're grabbing toys from other kids, is where you pull them to the side and you say, no. This is what God says. People are made in God's image. You need to share. You need to love other people more than you love yourself. And it's like we forget that every problem, every difficulty, every challenge, and at the very beginning stage is an avenue and an opportunity to say, no, this is how sin has broken you, but this is what God intends for you to do. And, and often as parents, as we're growing up, we don't have that on our agenda. The church often doesn't have that in its agenda. And what's Satan doing? Satan is getting mom and dad to fight so much about things that they don't have time to think about what God's called them to do with their kids. They're so occupied with their own conflicts and struggles that they leave their kids to grow up without shepherding and encouraging. That is what Satan wants. Satan wants kids growing up in a home where they don't see, they don't understand the church because they don't see the marriage that God intended them to have. Why so often do kids graduate from high school and never come back to church? It's because in their life they didn't understand the value of what a mom and a dad is in your life and shepherding and discipling. And they didn't understand how important church is and how you need church. And they see that work out in their home and then they don't, and, and, and then they understand 
with a bigger picture about what it means to be a part of the church. And Satan wants to destroy that. And so that's why he attacks the home. That's why he attacks the role of men and women. Because he's got a plan, and it is to kill and to destroy. So what about the church? What does God say specifically about the church? Well, I'm going to read some verses that, man, a lot of people prefer not to read in our day and age. It's in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I want to start in verse 9. It says this. 1 Timothy 2, 9, I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Why? For Adam was formed first and then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control goes on in verse 1. It says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Um, Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. So when we look at this passage, this is a, this, this is a challenging passage to think through. Some of the things we hear don't make sense to us. And I think one of the things that we need to be careful to do is we don't take one verse and we don't cross, out, cross it out with another. Um, we looked at some really valuable things that the way that God used men and women. And so we look at what was God doing in scripture and what is being said here and how do we put these things together without crossing anything out? And also, how do we consider culture? Um, is this culture? Is this something from the past? that no longer applies to us? How do we think about that? And so as we look at this, one observation I want to make is, and this is true in the family and it's true in the church, do you know how there's a lot of overlap in the instructions that God gives men and women? But you want to know that there's also a lot of things that are unique. And one of the things you see in this passage is uh, Paul is saying, I want men to do this and I want women to do this. That is an expression of a unique design of uniqueness in what God wants from us. Not better or worse, but God talks to men and women uniquely. There are unique instructions for men and unique instructions for women. And there's a lot of overlap because we're all people. And God desires the same thing from us in the sense of worship and love and obedience. So let's uh, just talk about this. Um, Verse 9, likewise also I want women to adorn themselves in respectful apparel with modesty and self-control. That's a principle that God wants. And then that's the other thing that you see in Scripture is, is that often he says this is the instruction and then here are the things you need to avoid. These are the things you're doing that are violating that. He gets specific. He gets practical. He gives application. And uh, often preachers do that, right? 
they say you should love your wife, and then they list off all the ways you could love your wife. Well, that's kind of what's happening here. He's saying be respectable and modest and exercise self-control. And then he gives some cultural application. And he says, um, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire. So what were the ways that women were disregarding modesty, disregarding respectful apparel? Is they were braiding their hair and loading themselves up with, with gold and pearls and, and they were... Um, uh, and, and costly attire, spending all kinds of money on their clothes. They were focusing so much on the outside and not thinking about what God said about the inside. And there are some, some culturally driven things there. So I went to a restaurant the other day, and uh, somebody says to me, you realize that that's a hangout for swingers. I don't know if you guys know what that is. And, um, and I just said, no, I had no idea. And they said, yeah. Swingers find out each each other by wearing white at that restaurant. When you were hanging out, did you see a bunch of people wearing white? And I'm like, I don't know. I wasn't paying attention. I didn't notice it, didn't see any of that kind of stuff. And so that, so like if somebody were to say, hey, don't don't go to a place and express yourself that way, the application might be don't go to this restaurant and don't wear white. That would be a cultural application of something. And so there's, there, there is room for culture, and as the Bible's written, it is written to a culture, and there are things that are unique and significant in cultures that, that are being addressed. It's not that it's a sin to braid your hair, um, because that, in that time and in that day, that was cultural. And one of the things, too, when you just think about culture, um, Jesus and the apostles never accommodated culture. When it was not culturally acceptable, um, to talk to a Samaritan woman. What did Jesus do? He went and talked to a Samaritan woman. And it's interesting as people read the Bible, they just go, yeah, that's cultural. Let's get rid of that. Or, yeah, well, I can't explain that. Um, Jesus, it, Jesus must just have been accommodating culture. No. Where culture is sinful, we need to reject it. When culture was sinful, it was rejected. Changing culture is not often, not, not necessarily the point. Um, it's the heart issue behind that. But that's cultural. And so what a lot of people will say is, oh, look, there are some cultural statements in here. This whole passage is cultural. Let's write it all off as cultural. Um, Most of the people who say they believe the Bible that I've read and have a different opinion about this passage, um, most of them say, well, we don't really know what it's saying. (laughs) Because it's kind of impossible to write this off as cultural. And so they just look at it and they go, well, it's saying something. I just don't know what it's saying. That's the most, that's the way that that is mostly addressed. There are other people who address it and also just say, yeah, it was written by Paul and he's a chauvinist. So, of course, we wouldn't believe that. Yeah, that's what it's saying, but that's wrong. Those are the people who don't believe Scripture. Uh, But the people who believe Scripture go, "Ah, I don't know. Or they do all kinds of gymnastics with these words and they appeal to Greek and Hebrew in way, or they appeal to Greek and the Greek languages in, in a way that is just misrepresents it. So then he goes on and he says in verse 11, let a woman learn quietly and with all submissiveness. Um, he's saying, no, women need to learn. And why do women need to learn? Because women need to teach too. Um, in this passage, he's going to say this, 
Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. God is intending that the leadership role in the church, the preaching role in the church, be men. And he says, why? Because Adam was formed first and then Eve. See, there are some people that will say, yes, it, it says this, but this is a curse of the fall. This is because of sin. But Paul says, no, it was because Adam was made first and then Eve was made. And just um, to throw something out there, there is no culture anywhere where Adam wasn't created first and then Eve. That takes it out of culture. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a trans trans transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So as we look at that passage, uh, that last verse, that's, that's been a, a challenge. And people have said, oh, okay, well, does that mean if you don't have kids, you can't go to heaven? Um, are there any verses in the Bible we'd be crossing out if we took that interpretation? That you go to heaven by having kids. There are some people that say, no, this, reverses, this, this refers actually to Eve. That mankind was redeemed by the fact that the seed of the woman came from Eve. I don't think that's true. This is talking to people in that day. This is talking about the most powerful influence that people have is raising and training their kids. Um, if you do that in a, in, a, in a way that honors the Lord. And a huge impact in culture. One of the things that I think is like... Um, kind of an expression of, um, of chauvinism is when people say, and by the, by the way, the Bible says women need, the older women need to teach the younger women. It's not like women be quiet, only men teach in the church. No, women need to teach. And the other thing is we all learn from each other and we all encourage each other. And it's not like when I walk into a room, if there's a lady talking somewhere, I walk out. I, I have learned so much from godly, faithful women um, and God intends women to take every teaching gift and their intellect and everything about what they have and to use that in the body of Christ to build people up and to teach. There are seminaries that won't let women go to the seminary because they only train men. Um, I think that women need to be just as educated and just as equipped and just have just as much a foundation to teach and to study scripture and to understand Greek and to understand Hebrew and to understand theology because women have a very significant teaching role in the body of Christ and need to use their gifts fully. Um, when Jessica was um, 13 or 14, um, I was teaching at Master's College and I talked to the Greek professor there and she needed to take a language for high school Maybe she was 15. I, she was in high school. And so I went to the Greek professor, and I said, can Jessica take your Greek class? And he's like, yeah, she can take our Greek class. So we used that. Well, she was in junior high. So um, anyway, I can't remember those things. But she was in junior high. And so in junior high, I stuck her in a college Greek class. And the class I was teaching had some other people in that same class. And they would show up, and they would say, yeah, Raj, it's kind of embarrassing because your junior high daughter got a better grade on our Greek test than me. I want our family and, and, I, I, and, and everybody should be fully equipped to use every gift they have. The idea that if you are not teaching or preaching in the main service, then your teaching is less important, less needed, insignificant. If you teach a Sunday school class of kids, that's unimportant but teaching the men in the church, that's really important. 
Oh, you teach a women's Bible study? That's okay, because women don't really matter. They're unimportant. What's happening? You know, God doesn't really have much of a plan for them. So if you teach women, that is a waste of your talents and abilities, abilities and gifts. But teaching men, oh, yeah, that's where it's at. That's who's important. That's who's influential. Like, do you see what is wrong with that kind of thinking? Instead of saying, no, I want to function and I want to teach and I want to invest everywhere. That was the disciples' problems. They thought kids didn't matter. You know, the most valuable, most important teaching happens with kids. The most valuable, important teaching happens to junior high and high school students. I mean, think about it this way. You can talk to somebody who's 50, who's lived their life, who's made all their decisions, who's already, you know, created all kinds of habits and issues in their life and try to help them put the bad things back together, try to fix all these mistakes they've made. So you can preach to the adults on the other end of it. Or you can have an influence and you can shape somebody's thinking before they choose who to marry, before they choose what to do with their career. When they're deciding, should I got, go take a job or should I go into missions? What's more important? What is more influential? What is more powerful? And you want to know something? They're all important. Teaching older people in the church, it's not like old people don't matter. It's not like the only people that matter are the kids in Sunday school and the, the junior high and high school students and all the adults that sit in church. Now nah, they're unimportant, insignificant. They've already made their choices. That's not true either. God values everywhere, everyone, and every one of us has a purpose. And, and for a person to devalue what God has commissioned them to do, that is a huge mistake. We need to embrace everything that God has called us to do. And you know what? If you're a man, um, you need to know God calls you to lead your family spiritually. God calls you to do that. And that doesn't mean you're the smartest person. Let's use the dancing illustration. There's somebody leads in dancing when you're dancing. And if you have two people and you don't know who's leading, like in dancing, it goes back and forth whether the man or the woman lead, but somebody, you have to know who's leading. And the person who's leading, it doesn't mean they're the smartest. It doesn't mean they're the best. It doesn't mean they don't take feedback. You get these two people trying to come up with a great routine. It's like, hey, what should we do? If something's not working, the one who's not leading might say, hey, if you did this, that would be better. And so you put together this beautiful dance, and that's what God intends, but for each person to play the role that he's given them. And if somebody's not doing what God has called them to do, that hurts everyone. And so, men, you need to lead in your home. You need to be the leader, and that doesn't mean you're the smartest or that you know everything or that your ideas are the best. And if you're a lady, you need to be the help that God intends you to be. You need to follow and encourage and help leadership. Not make that difficult, but encourage it and build up and take every talent and ability you have and use it to bless your family. That's what God intends. And the church is the same way. You know, it is sad when the only people who show up and want to teach are women. It is sad when the moms are dragging their kids to church and the dad would rather sit home watching TV. You need to lead your family to church. And you need to lead in the church. That's what God intends. And guess what? We're all messed up, and none of us have always done that the way we're supposed to. But we need to get on helping each other to do that. And that is why 
God says in Titus 2, the older women are to teach the younger women. Wow, if I'm a woman, I can't teach. No. God wants you to teach. God wants you to participate. Priscilla and Aquila, I meant to talk about them earlier. Priscilla and Aquila, Apollos, this amazing, magnificent preacher in the New Testament. In fact, he was so significant that people would say, I'm of Christ, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. Like he was on that list. And when he's preaching, Priscilla, a woman, and Aquila, her husband, heard him preach. And the two of them went to him and they instructed him more fully. So in the church, in the body of Christ, are we speaking to each other? Did Apollos learn from Aquila and Priscilla? Or was he going, no, I'm sorry, I only listened to Aquila. Priscilla, you're going to have to leave the room. No, that is not what that says. They both were encouraging him and teaching him. But I do want to say this. It doesn't say Priscilla instructed Apollos. It says Priscilla and Aquila instructed Apollos. And so these are things that we incorporate into our thinking as we think through what is it that God is saying that we are to do in the church. And so um, all of that is so that you'll understand why. Um, Men are preaching in church. It's not because we devalue women. It is not because it is our culture from the past. It's because when we study scripture, we believe that's what it says. And why do we encourage men to be the leaders in their home? It's not because we have some kind of a cultural thing or we're trying to, you know, promote abuse or anything like that. It's because God says this is how the home should function, and this is how the church should function. And you know what? If, if it was just our uh, traditional culture from the past, I'd just toss it. doesn't matter. But what does matter is what God tells us. And in the midst of this, sometimes we struggle. You know, I have very close friends, people I love, that I work with, who have a different view in this, on this issue. And guess what? We love each other. We encourage each other. We support each other. We don't divide over it. I've I've even had people that have attended church and functioned under my ministry knowing that we're different. And they have been so helpful and so encouraging. And they've said, Raj, I see this issue differently, but man, together God's put us here for a purpose. And then we work together and accomplish things. Because we love each other. And even though I have no doubt what God says about this, and it's not an unstudied, just kind of casual opinion, I have no doubt what God says. But I also understand that there's other people who are faithful and who love the Lord and they disagree with me about things. And I think if they could be wrong, I could be wrong too. And I don't think I'm wrong. Um, But you know what? We approach life with humility, right? Because if any of us thought we were wrong, we would change, right? So we love each other. We don't divide over things. We embrace God's word. We submit to him and, and we work really hard to get it right. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word. God, thank you for this topic and this church family and the body of Christ. And Lord, I just ask that you would help us to love each other, to build each other up, to follow you wholeheartedly. And Lord, we know that we're never going to get that all right. We're going to fail in ways that we are aware that we're failing. We are going to fail in ways that we are not aware of. And yet, Lord, we're thankful that you don't require perfect servants to work. 
Lord, we know that unless you build the house, they labor in vain who build it. And God, we ask that you would build this church. Lord, we ask that you would build the people that are here. And Lord, we ask that you would give us the privilege of being your fellow workers. In your name, amen.